electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. We start now. The Dow hitting a fresh 52-week high in trading today. Major averages all in the green. That is the scorecard on Wall Street. But the action is just getting started. Welcome to Closing Bell Overtime. I'm Morgan Brennan with John Fort. We just mentioned it. The Dow closing higher for an 11th straight day. It's the longest winning streak in more than six years. And investors now turning their attention toward earnings from NXP Semiconductors, F5, Whirlpool, and Cleveland Cliffs. We're going to break down all the numbers as soon as they hit the wires. And later, we will discuss the massive week of tech earnings set to hit Wall Street when we're joined by City Global Head of Technology and Communications Banking, Phil Drury. And the CEO of pension fund giant CalPERS on where she is finding big opportunities outside of the stock market. But let's get right to it and the markets. Major averages closing higher today. The S&P 500 positive in five of the past six sessions today, led by energy and financial sectors. Our next guest, though, remains bearish on equities. Joining us now is Eric Johnston, Cantor Fitzgerald, head of equity derivatives and cross asset. Uh, Great to have you on. Why Why are you still bearish here? Thanks for having me. So, you know, clearly the market has a significant amount of momentum and the fund flows have been very strong. You've seen, you know, $70 billion um, go into mutual funds from, from retail. Hedge funds have been increasing their exposure. Uh, and you see, really have seen it from all parts of the market, chasing momentum, buying call options, et cetera. But we think the fundamental back- backdrop is, is still quite negative. You know, stocks are not bound by any sort of fundamentals, and they can deviate um, from you know from time to time on the downside or the upside. But ultimately, we think the fundamentals play out. Um, you know, right now the market's trading, for example, at 20 times earnings, and the earnings yield is actually less than the money market yield. The last time we saw that happen was in 1999 and in 2001, and a multiple of 20 times, I think six months ago no one would have thought was the appropriate multiple. Now that we're here, um, price is dictating dictating the narrative to say, hey, 20 times is okay. Um, And then we think that the economic risk is one-sided and the earnings risk is is one-sided, meaning that if everything remains okay, then what you see right now, which is sort of subdued but steady growth would remain, but we think the risks are not for explosive growth to the upside, but actually the opposite, the risk is really the downside for economic growth. So what would you be looking for in terms of something that would trigger that risk to the downside right now? Because so far, most of the data has been Goldilocks, right? It's been at least at least the economic data, uh, case in point, even the flash PMIs today, they've been signaling what the market with this narrative wants to see right now. It's a great question. You look, you look at the markets now and it's, it's been complete, you know, it's a Teflon market right now where um, nothing has been able to damage it. Um, in terms of what we think could, uh, could damage it uh, would be one of them is earnings. So earnings have been a beneficiary of inflation. It's been very clear for the last two years. Um, and it's actually been very clear for the last you know, 10, 20 years where sales are moving with inflation. Equities are not a 
They're not priced in real terms. They're priced in nominal terms. So they have benefited from inflation. As inflation comes down, that is going to be a headwind for, uh, for earnings growth. And if you, from the, in terms of the economy, if you look at some of the uh, potential catalysts for the economy ahead, because I think ultimately it's a weak economy that's going to bring down the market. Mm. Um, it's not going to be the Fed. It's not going to be policy. It's ultimately going to be a weak economy. And we have the student loan moratorium that ends in two months. We have the excess savings, which are still high, okay. but go down by the day, and a bunch of other you know, factors like that that I think are going to hit the economy. So, Eric, I think the question is how. And I, I, I like this. We had Tom Lee on last week, who's like the anti-you, right? So people can hear the arguments and figure out how to make their own investment decisions. But for people who have been bearish like you and on the wrong side of this market, I think there are twin dangers, freezing in place and kind of assuming, okay, it's gone higher, but now my thesis is going to be right. And the other danger of trying to chase and take on additional risk to catch up to where you might have been if you had called it correctly. So what do you do now? Have you tweaked anything based on what you've seen in this market and how it's reacted or not to your previous assumptions to, to have a different sort of approach starting now? So I think the question you have to ask yourself um, for anyone is, does it make sense to, t- to pay 20 times earnings for stock prices? So if you look back historically, has that been a good strategy to do that? My second question would be, is it a good strategy to buy the market when the unemployment rate is at 3.6%, meaning full employment? Um, you know, is it a good strategy to buy stock, stocks when um, earnings estimates really have very little upside and potentially have downside? And okay, so but, th- but, but you've been wrong about this year so far. So I wonder, are there areas where you see new opportunity that say didn't exist several months ago, beginning of 2023, where you're saying, okay, like maybe equities in general don't make sense, but this pocket over here does, or this fixed income strategy has emerged that, you know, has a lot of potential that we might not have seen uh, seven, eight months ago? Sure. So I think, you know, seven or eight months ago, no one was talking about AI. That's clearly something that has been, it's been obviously very well talked about. And um, we think it's going to have tremendous impact on the economy over the over the long term. How you make money in that in the short term is a much more uh, challenging uh, a feat. But when we look in the market right now, we like healthcare. Healthcare has been a, a pretty material underperformer uh, this year, has certainly been left behind. And when you look at the defensive sectors that are out there, we think others have challenges. Consumer staples, we think, have challenges. Um, we think real estate has some challenges. But healthcare is an area where the secular trends are behind them, um, meaning are our tailwind for them. And valuation levels within healthcare actually look very attractive relative okay. to the overall S&P 500. So that's a place that we would, we would uh, certainly, uh, certainly like. Eric, hold on just a moment. Uh, F5 earnings are out, and our Steve Kovac has those numbers. Steve? Hey there, John. Yeah, and it's a beat on the top, uh, oh, sorry, beat on the bottom line here. Uh, EPS coming in at $4.21 adjusted. Street was looking for $3.76 adjusted. And just a slight miss on the revenue side of things, John. $4.79 billion in revenue there. Street was looking for $4.82 billion. We're still going through the report, and I will let you know what we, oh, I'm so sorry. Hold on. 
Yeah. We got, we got, we got, I read the wrong report here. I'm sorry. EPS is 321. Let me correct that. I'm sorry. It is a beat on the top and bottom line. EPS is $3.21 versus the 286 adjusted. And let me correct myself again on the revenues, which is a beat 703 million versus the 699.1 million adjusted, John. All right. Got it. And I know you'll keep up looking 2%. Uh, through that. And uh, we can get back now to Eric Johnston. All right. Um, Eric, you know, you mentioned 1999 in terms of some of the metrics you're looking at. Does this feel like a market going back to the to the tech bubble and, and bust? So I, th- I don't think we're I don't think we're anywhere near where the top of that uh, bubble was. But I think we're at prices where if you are bullish and think that stock prices should go higher from here, then you're betting on another bubble is the way that I would the way that I would phrase it. Right. Right now with the S&P at 45.50 and money market yields at 5%, right? Your break even one year from now um, is somewhere in the, you know, call it 4,900 area on a non-risk adjusted basis. And so you have to believe that we are going to go into a bubble in order to get the risk adjusted returns in in equities. And I think, you know, betting on another bubble, I don't think is the way, uh, is the way to go. If you look at some of the bull estimates out there, whether it be 250 for earnings next year and then 270 the following year, even if that were to happen at current multiples, you're trading at multiples that we haven't haven't seen other than you know, situations like like 1999 um, or the COVID bubble when you know interest rates were zero and the fiscal and monetary uh, stimulus was was massive. So that's really what you that, that's sort of the concern about owning equities um, you know, at these at these prices. And with the inflation kind of hanging and looming out there as something that could remain sticky, I think a bubble is going to be uh, hard to uh, unlikely to happen. Got it. Um, what happens if earnings come in better than expected? I know there's this expectation that we're going to see a contraction for this season um, and that perhaps that's the trough, at least based on what Wall Street consensus is right now. Um, we just got F5. I realize we're we are early in the week. All the big names come out starting tomorrow. Um, but, but what happens if, if everybody's been too conservative in their estimates? So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a huge week. And I, I do think that estimates are going to beat this quarter. Um, right now, the estimates are for negative year-over-year growth. I think they likely come in somewhere around unchanged year-over-year with winners, uh, winners and losers that are, that are out there. But I think broadly, um, if... You know, clearly, I think the, the bull case is that estimates do um, ultimately beat consensus. So the estimate for next year is for sales growth of 5% and earnings growth of 12%. Mm-hmm. Um, this year, sales growth was 4%. So you're betting on sales growth uh, accelerating while inflation is falling. How, that much, doesn't- uh, how much, Eric, of a factor is the Fed still in the market? A lot of chatter that uh, this next hike that we're expecting this week is going to be the last one. Some people saying that. But, you know, our Steve Leisman, he's going to join us later today, uh, can sketch out some scenarios where that might not be the case. Do you view one scenario or the other as being more likely? And is there market impact there? Or does it eventually just get priced in like everything else? Yeah, I think that they're, you know, I think they're, I agree with the rest of the market that they're in the ninth inning of the, of the hike process. Um, right now, the market feels fairly confident that that tomorrow, or excuse me, that Wednesday is the last hike, and that they'll be done after that. I would just say that 
I think if if asset prices are where they are now, um, I think there is risk of further hikes down the road. You look just in the past you know, week, we've seen oil, you know, WTI getting close to 80. We're seeing wheat prices go up, corn prices go up, inflation break-even is moving higher. So I do think that inflation is going to loom around, but I don't think that the Fed is going to be anywhere near the factor that it has been the last couple of years. I think kind of broadly speaking, they're at approximately where they're going to get to, and but they probably keep rates here for a you know for a fairly long time as long as the economy is uh, is holding up. All right. So, but I think we're really much more going to move to what is the economic growth outlook, what is the earnings uh, outlook, as opposed to what's the Fed going to be doing. Okay, Eric Johnson, uh, Cantor Fitzgerald, head of equity derivatives and cross asset. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. NXP Semiconductors earnings are out. Christina Partsnevels has the numbers. Christina. John, we're seeing a beat for earnings per share of $3.43. The street was anticipating $3.29 adjusted uh, for Q2. NXP also posting revenue of $3.3 billion. That's also a slight beat. The street was expecting $3.2 billion. For its revenue guidance for the following quarter, the quarter that we're in right now, Q3 revenue guidance, a range of $3.3 to $3.5 billion. The street was anticipating $3.3. So definitely a little bit higher end of the range given there. And then if we're just going to break it down for Q2 revenue, because there were some concerns about the auto sector, automotive, industrials, mobile, communications, all of those numbers came in higher than what we're seeing from the estimates on FactSet right now. So the stock is uh, up ever so slightly, just a three, uh, 70, um, about 1% now, let's just say. But uh, so far, some strong numbers. Okay. Christina Partsonobulis, thank you. Joining us now on the chips, Christopher Rowland, uh, Senior Equity Analyst at Susquehanna. Uh, Christopher, looks like um, the midpoint in revenue for the guide uh, is a bit higher. The stock uh, a little higher after hours, but there's been some concerns that uh, manufacturing in the auto market, particularly in the segment that NXP focuses on serving, might be slowing down and, uh, and that that could hit them in the future. Any sign of that or any concern of that? Or are you still uh, interested in what the stock can do from here? Yeah, in this report, we're not seeing those kind of signs uh, of a slowdown. In some of our other checks into the back half of the year, we could indeed see some auto slowdown uh, globally. Um, For a company like NXP, though, they've been trying to catch up on backlog, this huge backlog of orders that they've had given their limited supply. Now, for about two years, they've been trying to catch up to this backlog. We don't think it's until mid next year that they're fully going to do that, particularly for automotive. So talk to me about NXP versus Qualcomm. Both of them players in this auto space. Qualcomm tried to buy NXP some years back. Is one of them valued more attractively against that auto opportunity? I know with Qualcomm, you've got the smartphone overhang as well, but it's one of those growth areas that they try to highlight as being a positive for them. Yeah, for NXP, automotive is more than 50% of the total company's top line revenue. And for Qualcomm, this is significantly less. Um, So this really is, NXP is an auto story overall. As auto goes, NXP goes. And Qualcomm is a handset story. And handset is not doing so well right now. I would say it's a tale of two cities between auto and handsets right now. 
Yeah, sort of speaks to, I mean, the, the resilience of auto speaks to the normalizing supply chain and the fact that you're starting to see more of these vehicles get made reach uh, and reach consumers that have been looking to buy them. Um, you know, it says here in the release for NXP, it says um, it says that navigating through the cyclical downturn in our consumer exposed businesses at the same time, continued strength in automotive, core industrial communications, infrastructure businesses, consumer exposed businesses. What's the read through there, not only for NXP, but other peers in that area and what we're going to hear through this earnings season? Yeah, so they still do have meaningful iPhone exposure. So there could be a hint to something there. Uh, they also have handset exposure more broadly. Mm. Uh, they, they, they may be talking about the, the, the more broad handset market. Beyond those two markets, I would say consumer is somewhat limited for them. Uh, they did call out comms as an area of strength. That is surprising to us because all our checks for comms and 5G infra has, have been very, very weak, and they play there. So that was a surprise upside for us. Okay. Christopher, thanks for joining us. Shares are up more than 1% right now. Whirlpool, Thank you. Whirlpool earnings are out. Steve Kovac has those numbers, too. Double duty, Steve. Double duty, yeah, Morgan. So shares up slightly despite some mixed results here. Uh, EPS coming in at a beat. Morgan, $4.21 adjusted. Street looking for $3.76. Revenues, also just a little bit of a miss here. $4.79 billion versus the $4.82 billion Street was looking for. And some CEO commentary here saying in the release, quote, we are well positioned to benefit from housing-driven demand recovery noting they have a lot of deals with housing makers there. And then also reaffirming guidance for the full year, Morgan, including sales for the full year of up to $19.4 billion, Morgan. All right, Steve Kovac, thank you. Shares are up fractionally right now. Housing-driven demand recovery. We've been having this conversation for a while now, and it really, I mean, you can, you can debate whether the bottom is in for housing, um, but the idea that there's stabilization there as home builders move in to create more inventory and take a bigger piece of, of the market more broadly right now, Whirlpool seems to be benefiting. It's somewhat, but it's still a revenue miss, so one wonders. All right, up next, Citi's Global Head of Technology and Communications Banking on the outlook for tech valuations and deal making over time is back in two. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. Together with Delta, we're putting 5G into the hands of ground staff so they can better assist on-the-go travelers with real-time information. From the Delta Sky Club to the Jet Bridge, this is elevating customer experience. This is Delta with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. It's a big week for tech. Major names like Meta, Microsoft, and Alphabet reporting earnings throughout the week. Joining us now on set is Phil Drury. He is the global head of tech and communications banking at Citi. Phil, um, are the private deals, uh, are deals kind of gearing up again as the market has heated up again? I've started to hear some companies saying, okay, I see opportunity in AI, can't sit on my hands here, we'll grow into uh, the valuation that we have to pay. 
Thanks, John. And Morgan, good to see you. Um, there's certainly been a big impasse, right? It's been about 18 months. You look at M&A volumes year to date in tech, down 60%, so down more than the broader M&A market. Um, that's been a confluence of reasons why, but one of them is a seller impasse. Just the rapid deterioration in public valuations, given the sharp rise in rates and the inflationary concerns, that impasse is definitely starting to thaw, obviously helped by the tech stock rally that we've seen year to date. Um, and also, don't forget the financing markets now are starting to, with sights on peak inflation and peak rates, and we forecast a 10-year below where we are actually today. As that thaws, we sh should start to see more deal activity, both M&A and also IPOs. What's that conversation like behind the scenes? For example, IBM just did this deal, announced this deal, um, was it last week, week before? Um, what, what's getting the, uh, the companies and the lenders sort of off the dime and, and to do those deals? I think just a, a greater sense of positivity on, uh, on overall outlook. So consensus views are now softer landing in terms of the broader economy, likely to be the, uh, the first quarter. Um, we obviously don't have an immediate solution to what's happening uh, in Ukraine and, and Russia. That can remain uh, as an overhang. I think some thawing of tension, perhaps you could say, between the, uh, the US uh, and China. Mm. And we may even see some of this large cap, some of these large cap tech deals. We'll, um, we'll, we may well talk about some of the guidelines with the FTC that have come out recently. But we might see some deals get over the line and that should give some more confidence to, to deal activity as well. So you expect that you could actually see some deals get over the line from a regulatory standpoint? Because I feel like I've had a number of conversations uh, with bankers and the like where, where it seems like a lot of cold water has been thrown and splashed across sectors, across industries where so much M&A is concerned. Yeah, no one's really wanting to call it. And I think we've got utmost respect for, for the regulatory bodies. Um, but at the heart of M&A, the heart of what drives that corporate ambition is to improve performance and to fill gaps, right, in terms of the, uh, the operating nature of the business. Um, so a lot of respect for what the regulatory bodies are doing. Uh, guidelines and clarity, I, I think, is very important. But there will undoubtedly be some confidence if we can get a couple of deals uh, over the line. Also, if you just think about M&A and you look at financial sponsors and the m amount of dry powder that they have, uh, at the moment. I think there's a potential to see more activity in software. As an example, we think we've called uh, peak consumption levels. Um, and I think some of the sellers, um, City, we advised just last week on the, the force point deal in cybersecurity representing Francisco Partners. I think we'll start to see a little bit more of activity such as that. Interesting. So it, it seems like there's almost three different buckets. There's M&A, there's IPO going public, and then there's raising capital in the private markets. I realize every situation, every company is different, but for some of these private companies and these startups that maybe have been kind of stuck in position uh, for, for a while now, what are the most common conversations and what are people willing to do? Well, when you want to look at appetite in the public markets, first thing you do is look at follow-on equity offerings. We've, we've priced a number of follow-on equity offerings recently at pretty normalized discounts. The convertible bond market has, has been pretty active of late. Com companies selling stocks at, at premiums with coupons inside of where they'll, they'll raise in the straight bullet debt market. So these are the types of signals that we show private companies who are potentially looking to go public to say, look, 
the market is much more uh, investable than it was, right? You look at the VIX at 14 right now. You look at 85 basis points standard daily deviation. 12 months ago, that was a 2.5%, 250 basis point standard deviation. So the market definitely feels more investable today. That should give the confidence to potential issuers to come to market. Look at Carver. Yeah, go ahead. What's the role of the surprising relative strength in Europe? Andy Jassy was just telling us a few weeks ago, you know, more upside there than he expected, more stability, uh, either in terms of deals or in terms of the overall health of the market and global demand that's giving confidence to that. Where does Europe fit in? I'm not sure I would necessarily agree that Europe feels more investable right now uh, than, than the U.S. Uh, I'm not saying like more than the U.S., but more than expected for 2023. Look, I, I think, you know, companies need to need to finance. Right. And, and at the end of the day, um, it's that need that can drive potential sellers to come to market. I don't think the last 18 months has been a buyer impasse. I think it's just been seller's choice as to whether they raise private capital or not. And a lot of those U.S. companies in particular are very well capitalized. So there's not the same need or urgencies to raise capital. It's very much, well, yeah, we'll raise capital in our time. Perhaps there's a little bit more pressure on some of these companies in Europe to potentially need to come to market. All right. Phil Drury, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure like to be here. Sounds like some uh, green shoots. That's what it sounds like uh, in terms of the deal making and capital raising environment right now. All right. Well, up next, the CEO of pension fund giant CalPERS and why she thinks the private market may be generating more opportunities than the stock market right now. Stay with us. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. Together with Delta, we're putting 5G into the hands of ground staff so they can better assist on-the-go travelers with real-time information. From the Delta Sky Club to the Jet Bridge, this is elevating customer experience. This is Delta with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back. America's biggest public pension fund, CalPERS, seeing a 5.8% gain over the past 12 months, ending in June, according to its preliminary report, beating its benchmark. This comes as CalPERS grew its target allocation for private equity from 8 to 13%. Joining us now, CalPERS CEO Marcy Frost. Marcy, great to have you on the show. I guess break down the fiscal year and how you were able to drum up a, a return that did uh, meet or exceed your expectations. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, we're slightly above our benchmark performance. Yeah, public equity did quite well, even with the factor-weighted sleeve. We do have some drawdown risk protection still in the portfolio. And then a real success story for us was our private debt uh, program, which was a new allocation of 5% of the portfolio going there. Team did a wonderful job of allocating and getting that uh, money to work for us. Uh, you know, on the opposite side of that, in, in, in a very diversified portfolio, we had private equity you know, uh, performing a negative, fixed income uh, performing at a, at a flat uh, level. Got it. I mean, the opportunities in the private markets and alternative investing, um, you know, the reports that perhaps you are looking to invest in in the VC landscape a little more aggressively, for example. Um, Where are the opportunities and why do that, especially where venture capital specifically is concerned, why do that now? Mm -hmm. 
Well, I think we, you know, we always take an opportunity to look at the various asset classes and where we're putting, you know, the capital to work for our two million members. And private equity and venture sleeve in particular, you know, there was a period of time where CalPERS had some experience and, you know, certainly had some lessons learned uh, during that time frame about 10 years ago. But, you know, we have a new team in place. Uh, we're seeing high quality deals come in and we're really looking at whether there is an opportunity or the deal flow to put 10% of that 13% of private equity working in venture. And so the team is, you know, reviewing a number of deals that, that are coming in. We're excited about the prospect of re-entering that space. Uh, the other area really for us is co-investments. Uh, there was a period of time where we were very active uh, through the co-investment lens or the co-investment space. And again, a bit of a stall period there where we have now over the last three years reinitiated or relaunched, rebooted that program and seeing some really great success there as well. So Marcy. we need to diversify our... Yes. Yeah, um, I was wondering about private <laughs> debt. It was way down there at the bottom uh, in terms of the, the allocation in your portfolio. I think it's at 2.2%. Yes. And I, I wonder, is that a, a narrow window of opportunity that there was to really go more strongly into that in the rising rate environment when you know some companies were looking for, for cash, frankly? Or if you think despite the risk, that's an area where you're going to continue to grow um, your allocation? Mm -hmm. We will continue to grow the allocation there. The policy target is to have 5% of the portfolio allocated to private uh, credit or private debt, uh, you know, however you want to phrase that, with 2.2% of that allocation being put into play. Now, right now, we're doing that through some very, you know, high-quality managers, and uh, we do see opportunities to continue those allocations, continue that check writing. Uh, and in private equity, What's your approach there? Can you talk more about the degree to which you're going alongside established players if there are uh, certain industry areas that you're focused in on more than others? Mm -hmm. Well, we always look at where we have uh, the experience and really the utility to put the capital to play. So we have very strong, high conviction managers, high quality managers. As you know and your viewers know, there's a quite a wide dispersion of private equity returns, and it's really based on the quality of the manager, having the relationship with that manager over you know a number of fundraising cycles. So the team has been working very hard to make CalPERS another LP of choice and really to get that money into play. So, you know, I think what's been really helpful for CalPERS, unlike some of our counterparts, some of our peers, we're really in a very strong liquidity position. So, you know, we did this look back of the private equity program over the last 10 to 15 years, and really what we found is that we were not a consistent provider of that capital over these vintages. And so where we have some of our, you know, our... Um, uh, benchmark groups or our peer groups who are really at their policy levels and don't have checks to write. We find ourselves in a very different situation. We have checks to write. We've got liquidity to write them, and we see deals coming in on the co-investment, which of course does not have the fee drag uh, that we've experienced when we've had this non-diversified portfolio. For better or worse, right or wrong, ESG has become a politicized topic. How are you thinking about it? How are you approaching it? So we really have not changed our approach to environmental, social, or governance issues. We've always looked at you know, factors related to climate-related disclosures and the way that companies are managing for the future, whether that's energy transition or anything else related uh, to, to climate. On the social side, it's really about human capital and the way that both public companies and private companies are really treating employees because through employee performance and productivity, that is what you know, increases the value of these public companies, private companies, 
where we're invested. And then also having the appropriate, appropriate governance structures over these companies to make sure that we've got independence on those boards. We've got boards who are looking out for the long-term capital formation and not just those short-term returns. So okay. our position on ESG has not changed. We're trying to keep politics out of the portfolio. It's not always easy, but uh, these are really <laughs> these are really risk issues that we have to think about long-term. Yes. All right. Uh, CalPERS CEO, Marcy Frock. CalPERS with a P, not Cal the Pers. other one. Yes. yes. Thank you. <laughs> Thank right. You. Exactly. <laughs> Time for a CNBC News update with Contessa Brewer. Contessa. John, we have an update on the Gilgo Beach serial killer case. Investigators are scouring the suspect's property for clues now. A yellow excavator was seen scooping dirt in Rex Howerman's backyard. Investigators are looking for evidence that it indicates any of the killings actually happened there. The wooden deck has been dismantled and replaced with a white tent, and one investigator was spotted using equipment to scan for buried objects. Being from a very rich family increases a student's chances at being accepted to the nation's most elite universities, which you probably didn't need research to tell you, but a new study out today by a group of Harvard economists quantifies it. Even accounting for standardized testing scores, children of one percenters financially were 34% more likely to be admitted than the average applicant. And students from the top 0.1% were more than twice as likely as to be accepted. And two types of Trader Joe's cookies are being recalled because they might contain rocks. The grocer warned the almond windmill and dark chocolate chunk and almond cookies could contain rocks. The cookies have a sell-by date for this October, so they actually could break your teeth. Hmm. John. All right. Uh, Contessa, th- thank you. There's a rocky no, road. Really. Yeah, oof. Uh, FedEx pilots uh, grounding a potential new labor deal with the delivery company. Up next, find out where talks go from here, what they could mean for shareholders, and take a look at shares of F5 networks surging in overtime after reporting earnings at the top of the hour. That conference call just getting started. We will bring you any headlines later in the hour. It's been a turbulent day for shares of FedEx after its pilots union rejected a tentative new labor agreement. Frank Holland has the details. Frank. Well, John, the FedEx pilots union rejecting a tentative contract deal as rival UPS is a week away from the end of its contract with the Teamsters union. It's a possible strike that would have a potential $7 billion economic impact. All right, back to FedEx now. The pilots union releasing a statement saying, our members have spoken and we will now regroup and prepare for the next steps. In the coming weeks, the FedEx ALPA leadership, that's the union for the pilots, will meet to establish a timeline for assessing pilot group priorities. So take a look at this. This is actually video of the FedEx pilots picketing outside the New York Stock Exchange this spring when CEO Raj Jubramanian was there to announce a reorganization of FedEx into one single operating company. Then in June, the two sides announced a tentative deal. But today, 53% of union members, they voted against it. The National Mediation Board is expected to get the company and the union back together for more talks. FedEx releasing a statement saying the tentative agreement voting results have no impact on our service as we continue delivering for our customers around the world. FedEx will continue to bargain in good faith with our pilots. The company looking to assure customers there will not be a disruption in air delivery that generated nearly half of FedEx profits last quarter. Back over to you. All right, Frank, thank you. Uh, Morgan, I got to think that uh, if you're UPS uh, looking at this, you're thinking, you know, Teamsters, you're holding out. It's like, okay, this is labor's time. 
Well, it's labor's time in general. And, and by the way, not just in transportation, where you're also seeing American Airlines pilots reject the pay increase and an extra billion dollars going towards their contract on the heels of the United deal that was just struck as well. Um, but to your point, UPS and Teamsters going back to the negotiating table tomorrow. We've got UAW coming up, what, in September, I believe. Those no- no- negotiations have already started in the meantime. I mean, there, there's something here, and I'm sure it's going to be something the Fed is watching as they go into their two-day FOMC meeting as well. Yes, labor market seems to be loosening a little bit, but yeah. it's still incredibly tight, and you still see structural shortages for things like pilots. I'd say it would be a dramatic TV series about it, except there's a strike of the writers and actors. So there you go. There you go. All right, up next, the top portfolio manager on how to play the defense and aerospace industry ahead of earnings from Boeing, Raytheon, Northrop Grumman, and many more. Stay with us. Welcome back to Overtime, a big week for aerospace and defense earnings. We'll hear from names like Boeing, RTX, which is formerly known as Raytheon, General Dynamics, and more. Here to give us his investor playbook, Belly Funds Portfolio Manager, Tony Bancroft. Tony, welcome to the show and welcome to CNBC. Thanks for having me, Morgan. Um, uh, John, um, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, okay, so we've got a number, we've got a whole bunch of names on tap. RTX kind of kicks it off tomorrow. Commercial aerospace versus defense. What do you like more? Why? What do we need to watch? You know, I like I like them both very much. It's uh, uh, they both have some very strong structural and secular tailwinds. You're uh, you're seeing um, essentially, uh, uh, you know, uh, production rates at at uh, at Boeing still not back at levels they were pre-pandemic. So we've got a long uh, tail. We've got a long uh, runway there. And on the defense side, defense budgets expected to be up about three percent this year. And, you know, you're seeing tensions in, uh, in, in China with Taiwan, and you're seeing the war in Ukraine uh, and us trying to resupply uh, Ukraine and ourselves. And then all of NATO uh, essentially getting a wake-up call from what happened last year and also in- increasing their defense budgets. Yeah, I mean, Lockheed Martin, 8% increase in sales last week. The fact that they upped uh, aspects of their guidance as well. This counteroffensive in Ukraine does not seem to be going as planned, at least according to media reports. If, if you see this war continue to drag on, for better or worse, does that end up being positive for these backlogs and for demand for some of these defense companies? Uh, you know, I, I, who knows what's going to, how this is the end game of all this is going to happen. I, I think either way, on February 24th uh, last year, when, when uh, Russia invaded uh, Ukraine, I think uh, Europe and NATO said, you know, we need to really get serious about this 2% GDP target. And you're seeing it. You're seeing all these orders, um, F-35s, missiles, you name it. Uh, NATO is is coming to the table and starting to. And that's about it. That's about an eight bill. Uh, uh, excuse me, fifty billion dollar annual increase in the NATO budget. That's almost eight percent annually of of uh, more spending. If they were to, if all of the thirty one NATO members were to uh, spend at the two percent target. What about the China factor? China's been buying a lot of planes but their economy is looking a lot shakier than people expected at this point. If they pull back even a point, what kind of an impact does that have on specific companies or the industry? Uh, so on, on the commercial side of the, of the business, uh, you know, China, there's, there's, two, there's two manufacturers for all intents and purposes, Boeing and Airbus, and China's growing. Uh, you know, China wants to travel. Uh, I think that the data point they put out is about 
uh, there's about uh, 300 million um, uh, middle class coming up in, into the emerging economies, specifically China and India. And they, they want to, this is the experiential generation, they want to they travel, they want to see the world. And the only way you can do it is by air travel. And 20% of the growth of uh, the commercial, uh, commercial uh, production um, of, 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 the, uh, of, the, of the global fleet is going to come from China. So they're, they're going to be buying those planes one way or the other. And um, I, th I think we're going to see more and more orders as, as we go forward. All right. We'll see what we get from GE tomorrow, too. Speaking of jet engines and what all, how all this plays out, both on the military side and the commercial side. Tony Bancroft, great to have you. Thanks great. for being Thanks, with us. Morgan. Thanks, John. Up next, we'll discuss whether Jay Powell and the Fed could be ready to hike rates for the last time this cycle or not. We'll be right back. Federal Reserve kicks off its latest meeting tomorrow. Investors are trying to gauge how many more interest rate hikes are on the horizon. Steve Leisman joins us to explain why it might be two. Steve. Yeah, we got to do a little math, John, so just hold on here. We're trying to figure out how high to hike and where to hold the funds rate. The Federal Reserve looks at the nominal rate. That's the one everybody follows. But also the real funds rate, that is, after accounting for inflation. It's this measure that tells it how tight or loose it really is relative to the economy. And it's a measure that suggests the Fed has more work to do. One way to calculate the real rate, we take the one-year-ahead New York Fed inflation expectations. We subtract that from the current funds rate. That shows the current real rate is 1.3%. But the average Fed forecast suggests they want it higher. In fact, the average real funds rate forecast, you got the 5-6 nominal for this year, minus their 3-2 inflation forecast shows they look for a 2-4 real rate, more than a percentage point above the current rate. It declines to 2-1 next year. Both are well above the forecast for the neutral or long-term rate of 0.5%. And here's a little history for you folks. A real rate above 2% is above the long-run rate of 1.48 since 1960, just above the average rate for an expansion during that time. But well above, I couldn't believe when I calculated this number, huh. the minus 1.3% real rate since the great financial crisis. The good news, it's far below the 10% real rate of the vocal year. So as tough as it is now, the Fed has been far tougher in fighting inflation. The bad news, it has further to go. Sounds like when you're, you know, punishing a kid, like, it could be worse. It could be worse. <laughs> Uh, so it Which, also sounds like there is there is probably not a very strong likelihood that Powell doesn't keep September on the table then for another rate. Um, I actually think Powell is in this every other month mode. Yeah. He doesn't want to admit to being in every other month mode. But I think what he's doing is he's going to hike and he's going to wait. The likelihood, I think, is they come back and do it again in November. But remember, there's two... There's two pieces to this puzzle, the nominal rate and the inflation rate. If the Fed wants to be in a certain place, it can get there two different ways. The inflation rate can fall, and that raises the, the real rate, or the funds rate can rise. Right now, what the Fed's own forecast shows is they get half of the 100 basis points they need from a decline in inflation, and then half or 50 basis points from a 50 basis point rise in their funds rate. So we're talking about all these labor actions happening, potential strikes, strikes that are happening. Wages go higher because of labor's relative strength. How does that play into, when does that play into inflation concerns? So I think there's two pieces to that puzzle. Again, one piece is higher wages does create the possibility, the potential for more inflation. But you have to wait to see whether or not it passes through. Because remember, between higher wages and higher prices are profits and margins. Whether or not those higher wages 
um, require them or uh, if companies can pass them along is uncertain. What we want to see is more competition. We actually, I actually have this sort of reverse idea of the Fed. I think the more people you employ in the service sector, the more rates will come, the more inflation comes down. Because the only supply in the service sector is labor, right? The problem is this. The problem is where the workers going to come from. We have seen primates workers come back to the workforce. Mm-hmm. We need to see if we can I'm get other, other folks there. All right. Siri's sorry. Did somebody just scream at us? Yeah, that was, that was Siri. She's sorry. Siri, sorry? Yes. Why is Steve Leisman, thank you. Uh, We know you'll be uh, bringing us all of this content as the week goes on. Big week. Uh, It's big earnings day tomorrow as well. Alphabet, Visa, and Microsoft are on deck on overtime. Up next, an analyst who recently raised his price target on Microsoft weighs in on the key numbers he's watching for. Welcome back. Tomorrow will be an action-packed hour of earnings when overtime uh, we break down results from Alphabet, Microsoft, Visa, Textra, in- Texas Instruments, and Snap. And right now, we want to zero in on Microsoft, what to expect from that report. Joining us now is Michael Turin from Wells Fargo. Michael, what is the pivotal factor in this report? Is it AI language and the nearness of that, or is it something that they're actually going to deliver in the report itself? Azure stabilization and AI contribution are the primary two factors by a long shot. Azure stabilization is something they talked a little bit about last quarter, signs that that is continuing to surface and that growth rate is stabilizing. AI contribution expected as a 1% tailwind, if that continues to move up. Those are the primary factors investors and us are focused on. Which matters more? In this market, it feels like AI is the bigger bigger point of the puzzle. I mean, they are somewhat related to one another. you know, I, I think AI is the big point of focus in the market right now, and Microsoft stands as the most likely beneficiary we see within software. Anything that supports that thesis supports the long-term case for upside in numbers here, um, which I think is what investors are ultimately focused on. Stocks up almost 44% year-to-date. Does it have further to run? We think it does. Our price target moves up to 400. We, we like it into earnings. We think there's room for upside in numbers throughout the course of the year, particularly as some of the new product efforts, the Microsoft 365 Copilot product efforts um, stand to roll through the model. And we think Microsoft is well positioned as both a consolidator of IT spend and a beneficiary of the move back towards cloud and back towards AI. All right, Michael Turin, thanks for joining us. Shares are up fractionally right now. Appreciate the time. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Yeah, Morgan, uh, Microsoft's report is complicated. They got PCs in Mm -hmm. there, which could stand to recover a bit based on inventory. They got LinkedIn and Office as well as Azure. Yeah, plus there's that Activision Blizzard situation. They can. Uh, that's a future thing, right? The impact I know it's a future thing. It's like a show up in the numbers. Yeah, how much investors are going to focus on those possibilities versus what this report is telling them right now. Yeah. All right. Uh, we got a very busy week on tap. In the meantime, major averages finishing today higher. New 52-week high for the Dow specifically. The transports was the underperformer. Yeah. That's going to do it for us here at Overtime. Fast Money starts now. Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu.